Good morning, everyone. Morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Good. Apologize for the technical difficulties on the stream. Yeah. So it doesn't really help before you preach. You're trying to troubleshoot the um, the stream. I think we got it back. But for those of you who are online, you will probably be experiencing a bit of a lower quality in the video and audio. Uh, we will try to fix it after my sermon. Right. I will have to try and fix it. Nice to see everyone once again. Uh, once again, my last sermon was in December, right? And this round, Pastor James has uh, requested and given me a topic. So the last time, first one he said, I give you a chance. You go and choose. But after he tested me for one round, he decided to raise the bar. Right? And he has now given me a, a, a specific topic about priesthood. Um, it's a very interesting topic because it, it took me some time actually to, to understand, right, and dig deeper to ensure that, um, not to ensure, right, but to make this sharing meaningful and that you all will have a takeaway. Uh, I'm a firm believer of always back to the basics. And you heard that uh, in my sermon in December, right, back to basics about making the right choices. And I think this, this particular topic is a build-up, right? And it's a build-up also to what Pastor James has been sharing with us for the last couple of weeks about how we prepare ourselves for service for God, right? And, and therefore, I have titled my sermon, A Higher Calling. And what is this higher calling that is asked of us? I'm sure many of us have come across this book by Rick Warren, right, Pastor Rick Warren. Um, what on earth am I here for? Or more commonly, the title, A Purpose-Driven Life. What is a purpose-driven life? I'd like to, to read from, from the book. First page, day one, right? If those of us who have read that book, it's a day one, day two. Every day you read a chapter, right? And, and it builds up into how one can identify their purpose. And I thought this opening paragraph is so important for us as we start our study today. The purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment. Your peace of mind or even your happiness is far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on the planet, you must begin with God. You were born by His purpose and for His purpose. A very, very powerful um, opening. And I, I, I probably could end the sermon right here, right? but I'm not going to, right? because there's so much more to learn about our purpose on this earth. Colossians 1.16 and I've chosen an interesting uh, version. I'm not sure how many of you have heard of this version called Message, right? But it's a very simplified version, in my opinion, that breaks down the Bible verse in a very easy way to understand. And that's how I like to read the Bible too, right? For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and fine finds its purpose in him. 
Paul shows us all the encompassing nature of Christ's creative power. Right? In, in this one verse. It is absolutely everything imaginable. Heaven, earth, visible, invisible, and includes all living things, and angels, and all spiritual powers. Right? Everything, all encompassing. The ultimate goal of the Christian life, that's you and me, right, is to become conformed in his very image. And the likeness of our Savior, right? The image of the likeness of our Savior. Paul knew that, like every other believer, his sanctification was a lifelong process. It was not just that moment he discovered or met Christ, but it was a continuous journey until he stood in the presence of Christ Jesus. He wrote in further in Philippians chapter 3, 12 and 14, I read, I am not saying that I have this all together, that I have made it, but I am well on my way, reaching out for Christ, who has so wondrously reached out for me. Friends, don't get me wrong. By no means do I count myself as an expert in all of this, but I've got my eyes on the goal where God is beckoning us onward to Jesus, I'm off running and I'm not turning back. Ever since his saving encounter, right, with Jesus on that road to Damascus, Paul started to press towards the high call of God. He knew that many other Christians held him in high esteem and considered him as a spiritual giant, to which they all could not aspire, right? He was that all-awesome Paul. He could do everything. But Paul also had come to terms with his own weaknesses and his own sinful nature, which caused him to cry out, right, in Romans 7.24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? You know, Paul looked to Christ alone and pursued Christ's likeness with a passion. Do we have that same passion? His ambition in life was to fulfill the purpose for which Christ had saved him when he met Christ right on the road to Damascus. He has won many spiritual battles and had to grow from grace to grace into a certain level of Christianity uh, and maturity. But he had to attain all that Christ has purposed for him and had many spiritual mountains to climb. Yes, he had still those obstacles to overcome and enemies to face. Something that all of us can relate to. Right? As I studied Paul's writing and his journey, there is so much that we can relate to in our Christian journey right? as believers and looking for that calling. It is the responsibility of all Christians to press towards that goal. Just like how Paul has said it, right? Our objective in life should be to finish the race that is set before us, accept his death, death on the cross and his saving so that the life that we now live is a reflection of the beauty in Christ in us. But the journey does not stop there, right? After we have discovered Christ. I found Christ, I baptized, I'm into the church. Then what? Then what? Is there a higher calling that God calls upon to us to fulfill this mission? And that's where my sermon is about today. 
Exodus 19, 5, 6, we look at the Old Testament. Right? So today in my sermon, I'm going to refer a lot to the Old Testament and the New Testament, Old Testament and New Testament. Right? Um, so if you've got Bibles, get ready. Those have electronic ones will probably be able to find faster. <laughs> okay? But don't worry, I, 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 I'm just referencing. Right? And you can go back in the afternoon to really read deeper. Exodus 19, 5 and 6 says, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Moving to the New Testament, First Peter 2, 9, which was our scripture reading for today. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praise of him who called you out of darkness into the wonderful light. As Christians, we have a special place in God's unfolding plan. Yeah? This plan of redemption. We are born into a family of God and have become a new creation through spiritual birth and by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this verse, it says we are an elect race that have been brought out of the kingdom of Satan and into the kingdom of God. We have been made by faith heirs of God and joint heirs of Christ. You know, God has selected you and me out of the whole, all the groups of the whole world for a very special reason. We have been anointed to serve as his representatives on earth. We have been selected, called, chosen, consecrated, and set apart for a very particular purpose. That purpose is to proclaim the excellences of him who called us out of darkness into that marvelous stuff. You know, as we journey through life, just like Paul, right? Life of pain, sorrow, sinfulness, right? And we still fall back into that. But yet, we are to proclaim to the world in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, attitude and motives, the excellent glories of our Heavenly Father, who has redeemed us from the darkness of sin and death and in Christ into His glories, of His life and light. Again, I pause. We could stop right here, right, and wrap up the sermon. The calling is clear. The calling is very clear. But what does it really mean when we look at the two texts I've just read, right, in the Old Testament in Exodus, as well as in First Peter, when we are told we are a royal priesthood, a chosen nation? Is there a higher calling for us? Is there a higher purpose of why, when we have accepted Christ, what is our mission? What is our goal that we are aiming for? And that's what I want to talk about right? as we dig deeper into the study of Exodus and the whole idea of the role of the priest. Priesthood of all believers, right? It mentioned in 19, first, uh, Exodus 19 as well as in First Peter, holds that there is no longer a priestly class of people within God's people, but that all believers share in Christ's priestly status by virtue of their association with Christ. Right? Although there was a select group of priests in the Old Testament who mediated 
right? Um, the knowledge, the presence and forgiveness of God to the rest of Israel, Christ has come to fulfill that priestly role, right? Through his life, death and resurrection. Therefore, Christ was the final priestly mediator between God and his people. And Christians share in that role through him. This means right, that Christians are not dependent upon the pastor within the church. I'm not sure whether I can say that right, but I'll say that again. Christians are not dependent on the pastor within the church to interpret the scripture for them or affect God's blessing or forgiveness for them. All Christians, all of us, you and me, right, are equally priests through Christ and stand upon the same crowd same ground before the cross. This does not mean, right, that we can do away the pastor. Thank you, Pastor James. Well, farewell. Good luck. You are, you are all good now. No. Right? The, their role, right, the pastor's role is to nurture the church, is to provide instructions and sound doctrine for us. But we are supposed to also support, right, the rest of the church and its mission. Let us dive deeper into the understanding of the priestly roles, right? Because now that we know that all of us have a role to play, it is then now important to identify how we can play that role or how we can perform that, that duty. This is where I'm talking about the Bible texts. I will be referencing to the role in the Old Testament about what the priests did, and then I will draw parallels, right, uh, on what does that mean for us as the today believer? Okay? In Exodus 20 and 29, right, it, it, it talks about the priest consecration to God, right, and that they required garments prescribed, defined by God. Right? And the garments uh, had stones on the breastplate, right, the ephod, a rope, a broidered coat, a mitre, and girdle, and so forth. I don't know why I'm pronouncing all those words, right? But if you read that, right, and I still remember back in kindergarten, you have the felt thing and then you put up the priest and then you start putting up all the, 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 the different, right, for those of us who went there. It was, didn't really connect, right, but now as I read that, it reminds me of that, right, and you think of the tabernacle and we move around all the items and the teacher will tell us where to place those things, right. But just imagine the priest with all his robes. I didn't want to put a photo there because we're not diving into the robes itself, but yeah, you can imagine that, right. The priest was not able to perform his duties without this government, back in the Old Testament, right, in the tabernacle. Consecration of the priest in chapter 29 took place by means of a ceremony, right, and they had to go through the sacrificial sin offering, ritual washings, being clothed in special garments, and then anointing with oil and sprinkling with blood. The purpose of their consecration was to serve God. Our salvation is still a work of total grace based on the perfect righteousness of Jesus and not on our own. We are still directed to consecrate ourselves before the Lord, not as a means of earning His favour, but as an appropriate response to His favour. What does the process of consecration look like for us? Right? This is the Old Testament. What does it look like for the modern believer? First, we must remember that God's grace is in our lives. One of the most common commands in the Bible is to remember all that God has done for us. 
right? You read it over and over again in different segments of the Bible. Remember what God has done for all the blessings that He has bestowed upon us, right? And the grace that He gives to us. Second, we need to remove our idols and distractions. As the people move, you know, from uh, into the promised land, right? They found it full of other nations who worship other gods. And I think James talked about it last last week, right? The golden class. Right? Uh, and this is a helpful picture of the church today, right? The position of the church today in, in today's world. We are surrounded by people who worship everything and everyone, right? That distraction in this world today. And because our hearts are naturally bent away from the devotion to God, we will naturally drift towards idolatry. That is why Jesus commands us to seek first the kingdom of God ahead of everything else. To consecrate ourselves before God, we need to recognize where we have adopted the idols of our surrounding and remove them from our life. The idols get in the way of us connecting with God, consecrating our lives to God. Third, we need to repent of our sinful attitudes and actions. Right? When we turn from our idols to seek the Lord, we must confess the sins that have become second nature to us. And it's not easy. Right? Like Paul said, he's a wretched man. He keeps falling back. We must be mindful of the sins that we most easily excuse, the selfish attitudes, the evil thoughts, and the harsh words. And as you consecrate before the Lord, ask Him to show you the sinful attitudes and actions and turn from those sins back to our Lord. The fourth point I just want to share is we need to recommit our hearts to God. Consecration is ultimately not about clean living. It's important, but it's not about that. It is about worship. We consecrate ourselves before the Lord not to prove ourselves to our neighbours or feel good about ourselves. We consecrate ourselves before the Lord for the Lord. I say that again. We consecrate ourselves before the Lord for the Lord. We pursue holiness as an act of worship out of our deep love and awe for the worthiness of our God. In this way, true consecration seeks to bring the Lord the glory, the honour that He deserves. Another role of the priest, right? And we go back again to the Old Testament, Exodus 28. Was the representation of the people in the presence of God, right? The priest represented the Israelites. The high priest had the names of the leaders and tribes of Israel on his shoulder and breastplate. And when he entered the presence of the Lord, in this way he interceded with God on behalf of the whole nation. How about the believer today? How do we play that role? It is the privilege and duty of the believer to pray for one another in the name of Jesus. This is evident in the Lord's Prayer, in the example of Paul, and in the commands of the New Testament letters. The Bible is filled with examples of men and women who have lifted others in prayer. Intercessory prayer is praying for the needs of others. Praying for others is an unselfish expression of love. Why does God want us to pray for others? Because intercessory prayer reflects God's own character of outgoing love and mercy. God wants us to think like He does, 
and praying for others help us to think beyond ourselves and to grow in compassion for others. You know, God gives us instructions to pray for others in several places in the Bible. And these are a couple of verses that you can, you can refer to, right? But the Apostle James tells us to pray for one another that you may be healed. He encourages us to intercede for prayer for church members and ministers in Ephesians. Praying always, right? Ephesians um, chapter 6, 18. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Being watchful to the end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open up my mouth boldly to make known the mysteries of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray for the church. And we are even to pray for the government leaders and others who we may not know exist and who haven't asked us to pray for them. Right? That's in First Timothy 2. That supplication, prayers and intercessions and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. That includes our government leaders, right? That we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and reverence. You know, Jesus Christ is the perfect example of, of an intercessor. He lived a human life. He had to go through trials and challenges too, just like you and me, right? So he understands what we are going through. He is on our side and can sympathize with our weaknesses. And he makes it possible for us to receive the mercy and help we need when we approach that throne of grace. He wants us to learn to be intercessors as part of our priestly role. Right? Let's pray for, continue to pray for one another. And start to if you have not. A third role of the priest in the Old Testament, Leviticus 1-7, to and there's chapters, a lot of verses, Right? And if you read those chapters, right, it talks about how the priests offer sacrifices to the Lord on behalf of the people. It explains how after the Israelites built the tabernacle, the Lord revealed to Moses how they should offer the sacrifices to him. Those sacrifices pointed the Israelites towards Jesus Christ and emphasized their need to rely on his anointing sacrifice for redemption. Every believer is to offer to the Lord themselves as living sacrifices. And we hear that, right? There are many sermons preached on it. But I want to call out just a couple of ways we can sacrifice our lives. Sacrifice of your lips. Right? The writer of Hebrews says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. The fruits of our lips that confess his name, for such a sacrifice, God is pleased. Much of the first 11 chapters of Romans are about the sacrifice of Jesus for us. But Paul, having set up all that God has done for us, responds with a sacrifice of praise. Our lips, do we praise him? Sacrifice of the life. I didn't put it in any particular sequence, but probably sacrifice of life is the, one of the most critical ones, right? Paul encourages... Encouragement to the Romans, right? It's no easy calling. To be a living sacrifice means to live every minute, every day as an offering and service to the Lord. It radically goes against our culture of self-promotion, making our own dreams come true, right? Like uh, Pastor Rick Warren has mentioned. It means laying down our own ambitions 
dreams, gifts, and even fears, and telling God, do whatever you want with me. I am your servant. I'm with that mindset, right? When we have that mindset, we must be ready to reject the things that do not line up with God's word. Are we ready to do that? Devote ourselves to having our minds renewed and to learn how to discern the will of God for our lives. You know, Paul's description of a living sacrifice also reminds us that you have to go on offering your life as a sacrifice to God. Offering the whole of your life for the whole of your life. It's a continuous process. It's a continuous process. Sacrifice of your wealth. Generous giving is another New Testament sacrifice, right? Paul encourages the sacrifice of generosity in contributing to the needs of others and to share with God's people who are in need. This is another sacrifice that God is pleased with. We're even to give generously to our enemies. And the scripture tells us, right, if you see your enemy, provide them food, lunch. Or if they're thirsty, get him a drink. Your generosity will surprise the enemy and your goodness will come true. And the last one I want to talk about is maybe one of the hardest sacrifices, besides the sacrifice of your life, sacrifice of your love. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifice, God is pleased. Love is about sharing with others. Doing good doesn't mean giving up the things that are not good. Right? Sacrificial love involves allowing God to transform us completely. Our love must be sincere. You know, the Greek word for sincere means hypocrisy or literally without play acting without a mask. Our relationship in this world, for many, is very superficial. We all put up fronts. We wear masks to protect ourselves, right? We call it an image. How many of you have an image? Don't raise your hand. We all have images, right? We all want to project something that we don't want somebody, others to see. That's an image to protect ourselves. So I'll pretend they are somebody different. If other people are doing the same, then there are two fronts. And there's a meeting of marks. Two images. Right? The sad result is what? That the two real people never meet. This is the opposite of sincere love. Right? Sincere love means taking off your mask and daring to reveal who you are. When you know that God loves you as you are, you are set free to take off your mask. This means there's a completely new meaning, right, and authenticity in your relationship. Instead of trying to impress people with our mask, as we reveal who we truly are, with all our flaws, right, and our sinful nature, we connect through our vulnerability. For me, this is one of the most difficult, right? Elder ho. <laughs> Right? And so forth. Right? So, so how do we remove that and become authentic to connect with one another, another especially in the church setting? And I, I recall James even preaching about one of this, on, on this topic, right? About how we can really talk to each other being ourselves. How do we even begin, right, with such a process? Because, I, like I say, this is really difficult. The answer is simple. Look to Jesus. 
Jesus set a perfect example for us. And he's always ready to forgive us when we fail to live up to the example. We will mess up at times, but Jesus is always there to make it right and to give us grace. We can take comfort in this as we walk towards living every moment of our life as an offering to God. A fourth row, I five, by the way. Okay, fourth row, reconciliation. The fourth row of priests is reconciliation. What, what does that mean? The priests, by offering sacrifices, work to establish reconciliation between sinners and the Holy God. Right? You, th- you think again of the Old Testament context. It tells the story of the relationship between God and Israel. And it was often a tug of war, right? It was a constant cycle of disobedience, judgment, and then repentance. Right? Throughout the whole Old Testament. God's relationship with his people was maintained by his patience and commitment to Israel and not by their depth of their faithfulness. And Leviticus again, right, chapter 1 to 7, talks about different types of sacrifices that the priests would bring. There's the burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. You can go on, right? And these various offerings were meant as a reconciliation between God and Israel. Jesus sacrificed his death on the cross was the beginning of the great work to make peace with creation, with all of us. Those who decide to follow Jesus becomes part of that process. This is what Paul tells the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-20 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as true God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. When we come to Jesus, we are transformed and equipped to become ministers of reconciliation. That is our calling. Just like what the priest did in the Old Testament. This is personal, purposeful and goal-oriented. The mission is not ours. It is God's. Reconciliation is the mission of God. You know, while I was again reading up right about reconciliation, I found um, a sermon by Lowell Cooper, the former GC vice president. In one of his sermons, he said, the mission was not made for the church. The church was made for mission. The message of reconciliation is that God's grace has released us from the burden of our past. The grace that releases us is not finished with us. It only lifts us up, out, of sin. It also recruits us to be ministers of this grace ourselves. Our relationships are changed and it binds us with a stronger tie than guilt, ties than guilt and duty. We are called to make God known. Not to draw attention to our lifestyle or doctrine. Sounds familiar? People who are looking at behaviors are not looking at God. 
to make God known and glorify Him, we must live in, in such a way that reveals Him. That is the mission of the believer. The church is His ambassador, inviting the world to come and be reconciled with the King. This is why we have been commissioned to fulfill the Great Commission. Right? It is through us that God makes His appeal to the world to come and live in harmony with God. The last role of the priest is to provide access into the presence of God. There was this elaborate setup, right? If you read in the Old Testament about the tab- tabernacle, and then you have the courtyard, the holy place, and then the most holy place, and all the artifacts within the tabernacle, where to, where to do the sacrifices um, and the veil. There was this veil that existed between the holy place and most holy place. And the purpose of the veil was to keep out people right, from entering the symbolic presence of God. It told sinful man that he could not approach God except by a prescribed means. It stood in the way of God's presence, that veil. It was a closed door. The only person who could enter the holy of holies, right, the most holy place, and remain alive was the high priest with the blood of the substitute sacrifice and then only on the day of atonement. Right? All that is in the, described in the Old Testament. But the high priest could never enter without the blood. It was a constant reminder that sin separates the sinner from God. So this veil is symbolic of the personified life of Jesus. And the tearing of the veil was his death on the cross. The death of Christ opened the new way into the presence of God. Right? It allowed us to assess God. At the same time, the purpose of the physical temple in Jerusalem ended. Since Jesus had offered up to God the Father the perfect sacrifice for sin, it was no longer needed. In the New Testament, we read that in Christ, the believer has access into the presence of God. And it, in the scripture, right, Ephesians, Romans, and Hebrews, it, uh, Hebrew, it talks about that unimpeded relationship that we can now have with God. Ephesians 2.6 God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Romans Through Jesus Christ we have gained access by faith into His grace into which we now stand. Right? Because of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we should approach the, train at the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our times of need. Hebrews 4.16 And Paul sums it up very nicely in Ephesians 3.12 In Him, and through faith in Him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Access into the presence of God. The sin barrier is gone. Remove forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who have received Jesus Christ have in Him received also this amazing gift that we right now have permanent, present access into the presence of the living and holy God. If we were to look at our own merits, we would indeed still be disqualified and banned from God's presence. 
our sin would see to that. Right? But we do not look to our own merits. We look to Christ alone. We do not trust in ourselves. We trust in Christ alone. We believe not in ourselves. We believe in Christ. In Christ and in Christ alone, we have this assurance, this confidence, this bonus that we have permanent, present access into the very presence of God. Let's wrap it up. If we reclaim the idea of this priesthood of all believers, we will pray more boldly, offer up sacrificial sacrifices regularly, and realize our unique privilege in Christ. If we recover our identities as full-time followers of Christ, regardless of where we are, we will be willing to confront the problems in the church and in the world. We will be able to live our faith both through our direct participation in the church, through our profession, and through our engagement, wherever that may be, at work, school, and community. We will truly be agents of reconciliation, ambassadors, and mediators. Can we see our work in the world as a priestly act? as part of a royal priesthood? Can we use our profession to serve those around us? I leave you with the thought, what is your calling today? May I get the church to rise as we sing our closing song?
Father, we have decided to follow you and we are not turning back. And as we hear your calling, may we be ambassadors, mediators and workers for you to complete the mission that you have tasked us to do. Now as we leave this place, Be with us and take care of us. For I pray in Jesus' name, Amen.